So turn your Bibles there. Normally I have the passage up on overheads, but my program crashed this morning just as I was sending it to them. So um, we don't have the actual passage there. So if you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody beside you. It's a lengthy passage. So I would ask that, hey, don't check out. I'm not going to read all the names. Don't get nervous. We're not going to read the portion in the middle there. That's not ungodly to do. I will reference that. So we want to give attention to God's Word. So turn your Bibles to Nehemiah 7. For those who don't know, Nehemiah and the people of God have been in the process of rebuilding the place of God for the glory of God's name. Nehemiah had been grieved. He heard news from his brother Hanani that that the temple was in disrepair, that the city was in disrepair, that the people were kind of uh, in, in disrepute because of that. And God's name was being defamed. And so he began this process. And now they've been going for 52 days and they've rebuilt the entire wall. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has faced all kinds of enemies. And now the wall is built. And what you might expect is this great celebration. And although that does occur later, right now what Nehemiah does is he takes a step back and says, now that we've finished the wall, let's not rest on our laurels. Let's not assume the work is done. You know, because so often our our human tendency is when we accomplish something, we get something finished, or we reach a certain place in our lives maybe, or maybe you're a student, you graduate, or maybe you are, you know what, I finally retired, or maybe you hit hit that career stride, mid-career, and you're thinking, I've arrived, I can coast. And Nehemiah doesn't do that. He says, wait a minute, let's let's evaluate things, let's see where we're at, because we want to keep moving forward. And so this passage is all about that. It's all about taking account or, or evaluating where things are in the midst of success. Because you know what? Honestly, for, for me, most of the time I'm tempted, and not about you. You, you, ever, you ever, anybody here ever tempted, by the way, to, to do things you should not do, to think ways you shouldn't think? So I often find I get most tempted not when things are hard, although that is tempting. It's when I think I'm doing great. When I've just, hey, I just finished something, we just did well, and I'm not on guard. And so that's kind of what Nehemiah is avoiding here. He is making sure as a wise leader, hey, let's not rest on our laurels. Let's not grow comfortable. Let's continue to move forward. And now the bigger task lies ahead, right? The biggest task they thought was building the building, You know, starting a church plant, beginning a church, starting the initial effort, we all think that's a big task. But you know, the harder task is continuing the work of the kingdom, right? You know, how how many people here thought, you know, planting a church, being a part of church, anybody here been a part of a church plant before, by the way? Anybody at all? Did you think it was hard work? You can say, yes, it was hard work. But you know what? The harder work is not the beginning. The harder work is continuing through the mundane of life continuing to build the kingdom uh, for the long haul because we're in a marathon we're not in a sprint we're in a marathon and continuing to work for the long haul until we meet Jesus and so in order to do that though we need to make sure that we take time every once in a while to take a step back evaluate and say okay wait a minute to move forward let's make sure we're starting right and that's what we see in Nehemiah so turn your Bibles to Nehemiah 7 we'll read God's word this is God's holy inspired word Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors." Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. These were the people of province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nehem, Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. I'm going to stop reading the genealogy there for your sake. 
If you look down your Bibles just for a minute, follow along with me, I'll kind of explain what the different layout is here. In verses 8 to 25, they're listed in by families and clans. And then in verses 36 to, or 26 to 38, they're listed by their towns. And then from verse 40, 39 to 45, he lists the priests. And those are followed by the Levites. And those are followed by the singers and those who lead in worship. And then he goes from 46 on, he lists the temple servants, the palace servants. And that includes, by the way, some Gentile names, which is really cool to notice. Because God has already brought in people from other nations into their midst. He's already begun that good work that he actually calls the people of Israel to do. The reason they're building this whole city is so that they can bring the nations in. They can be a means of blessing to the nations. And so we always see that beginning in 46 to 60 there. And then we see another group in in verse 61 to 65. You can look down there. It's a, a bunch of families and people who don't quite make the grade. And I'm very encouraged by that. So I, I often do not make the grade. I feel like I don't make the grade. And so a bunch of families and people, and, and, and they could not prove their lineage. They couldn't prove they were part of the priesthood family. And so they weren't considered worthy to serve. They weren't considered worthy to be priests. Now let's go down in, in verse 66. Let's pick up there, and I'll finish reading from verse 66 on. This is God's word. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold. 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave him to the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,000 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in the towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Well, let's, let's take a pause here and pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that every part of your word applies to us, Lord. Even, even lists, even genealogies, parts of your word that, that we wouldn't normally gravitate to, Lord, that they speak something important to us, Lord. Thank you that there are principles in your word that apply to us today. God, I pray that you would come right now that you would send your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that where we are gathered in your midst, Lord, we we can be sure that you are here. But God, we ask you for your Holy Spirit. It's only by your Spirit that I can preach. God, I ask you to fill me with your Spirit to preach. God, it's only by your Spirit that each and every one of us can hear your word. God, would you open up our ears where they're deaf? Would you open up our eyes where we're blind? Would Would you soften our hearts where they're stony? God, would you make us receptive to your word? Would you make your word alive in us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you wanted to run a marathon, you'd probably want to do some things first, right? Now, now some of you may, may run marathons. I know a couple people in the room have run a couple marathons. Anybody, who has run a marathon in the room so far? Like a 26.2 miles. Okay, we have one guy, Pete. He's run a marathon, so Pete... Um, maybe, maybe it's a 100 miler for you, um, you know, or a 20, 24 hour race for you. For all of us, it would be a marathon. So if you want to run a marathon, you'd have to do some preparation. You couldn't just go and, and expect to move forward in running without thinking through, without evaluating, without saying, okay, I want to consider things. I want to, I want to, I want to figure out what I'm eating. I'm going to guard my diet. I'm going to guard my sleep, my time. I've got to budget things. I've got to figure those things out. And, and then I want to make sure that I'm, I'm planning rightly, too, so that I can get to the place. I can't just start off all of a sudden trying to run. You need to give time and effort and probably spend some good money on some shoes, at least, and before you plan to move forward, you have to take a pause. So you have to say, okay, what kind of shape am I in? And if you're like me, you, you need to build up really gradually. Um, I, I'm not in the shape I was 27 years ago in high school. But, uh, you know, it, it, it'll take a while to get there. But I think we could, if we, if we all put our minds to it, we can move forward. But you'd have to take account of what you'd have. You have to make sure you're, you're guarding things rightly and you're assessing where you're at. What we see in this passage is that they've run a little race. They've, they've run a race. They've, they've built a wall. And in and, and, and perspective, it's little, although it's a massive accomplishment. 
It's a massive accomplishment because the wall was torn down. It was in ruins. The city was unprotected. And the whole purpose of the city of Jerusalem was to be a place for the worship of God where God's people could come in and where they could be a light to the nations God's name could be testified of. And that was in disrepair. That was torn down. So they needed to build the wall. So they've built the wall. It's taken 52 days. That's pretty astounding for this group of people. But in in perspective, though, the rest of the book of Nehemiah It takes place at least over 12 more years. And so the rest, the other other remaining chapters from from 7 on, they really, it's a 12-year period where that, that long period of living life in the kingdom is much harder. And you know, as a believer, and and when you come to a church, you know, you become a believer, and there are some hard things you must do. You must give up your past, must deny yourself, follow Jesus, take up your cross and follow him. And then when you do that, there's this excitement and this wonderful initial burst of faith in God. If you become a believer, uh, then you have experienced that at some point. But then the hard part is continuing on the race, right? The hard part is continuing the race through the rest of life. And sometimes it gets grueling, sometimes it gets hard. And, and every once in a while, you need to stop and take account and say, okay, we, we need to look back on what we've done. We need to figure out, let's make sure we're guarding ourselves and then make sure we're gauging or rightly assessing where we're at because we want to move forward. We want to move forward. And so that's what they're doing here. To move forward, you have to start off right. And so they want to move forward building the kingdom of God. And so what we see is, is to move forward, they have to start off right. He does two major things. Two major things in this passage that we can see is, is he guards what's important. He guards what's important. And then later we're going to see is that he gauges. He gauges where they're at. He, he estimates, he evaluates where they are at. As a church, as a as a people, we need to guard what's important and engage who we are and what we have to move forward. Now, now maybe you find yourself on the back nine of life. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, you're, you're playing the latter half of, of, of the course, if, to use a golf analogy. And, and if you're a little older, you might get that better than people under 30. <laughs> so maybe you're in the back part of life and you think, you know what? I'm just going to coast from here on. But I would encourage you, don't coast However much longer you have, move forward for the kingdom. Or maybe you find yourself and you are just getting started and you are a youth here and you think, you know what, I've got my whole life ahead of me. Well, before you start, make sure you're starting off right in order to move forward. We want you to move forward in in the purpose that God has called you to. Or maybe you're like me and you find yourself in the middle of life. And maybe you're in a place where you didn't expect you'd be the place you are. Right? Anybody here in a place you did not expect you would be where you're at today, where things would not look like you thought, they, or do not look like you thought they would? Man, I, I didn't think I'd be here, a pastor. I, I didn't think I'd be doing what I'm doing. I didn't think life would be like it is. I thought things would be much different. And there's temptation there as well to, to kind of get lost, as Paul Tripp calls it, lost in the middle. I want to encourage you, don't get lost in the middle. Move forward. In order to do that, Let's start afresh and say, okay, how do we, in order to move forward, how are we going to assess where we're at, guard the important things, and then gauge what we've got, who we are, and and what we have so we can move forward for the future? And and that really applies to every one of us, to every season of life. We we need to take a pause and say, okay, great, let's move forward. Let's not stop the forward momentum as a church. Let's continue to move forward. Because you know, as a church, this is the age as a church where the church begins to coast, just be honest with you. When you study and read about churches and church planning, somewhere like year 10 to year 15, churches begin to coast. And churches begin to just kind of plateau because people have lost sight of the vision of moving forward in God's kingdom because it's hard work. It's hard work doing the mundane of life, building the kingdom. After the walls of the church, so to speak, are built, the hard part is what Nehemiah is going to face here and the people are going to face in the next few chapters is continuing to build the kingdom which is the people of God. And that's hard. But let's move forward. So let's, in order to do that, we have to guard what's important. I, when I first started off, not only did I not think I'd be a pastor, I, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, which is kind of funny. 
Um, and then I thought I was going to be an IT guy. And then, so when I first got started, though, I, I started studying history and, and politics and that kind of thing. And I was really intrigued by history. And, and I started studying history, and I, I came across a story about Quebec and how Quebec, it was being held by the, the, the French-speaking Canadians at the time. And there's this plains, uh, they call Plains of Abraham, and there's these cliffs that go up to the citadel of Quebec, and they're really high. It's about 175-foot-tall cliffs. And at the top of these 175-foot-tall cliffs, you have the, the ocean comes right up, and you have this 175-foot-tall cliff, and at the top of that, you have a citadel, and that was the citadel of Quebec. And, and the French men who were guarding that citadel, they, they were very secure in that citadel, because after all, nobody could make it up that cliff. And so they, they were not watching the back of the fort where the cliffs were. And so in the middle of the night, there was, I, I can look down, I can't remember the general's name. There's an English general named General Wolfe. And it's funny, wolves creep in. That's kind of funny. I didn't even think about that. Um, so General Wolfe, and there, he, in the middle of the night, decided that he would have his Highlanders, his Scottish Highlanders, they would, they would scale the cliffs, something that, that no one would attempt and so each of them stood on top of each other and they would help the other person up and they would stand on top of each other when they had a great place to stand and then help the other person up and keep doing that all the way up. And they got their forces all the way into the fort because they weren't guarding. They assumed that everything was okay. They didn't guard what was important. Nehemiah knows that, that the city of Jerusalem, they're, they're in danger of becoming lax and not guarding what's important. So the first thing he does is he guards what's important. That's the first principle we're going to see from our passage is, is that we need to guard what's important. If we're going to move forward, sounds kind of funny, but if we're going to move forward, you have to guard what's important. Keep what you got. Guard what's important. Guard the good deposit that we've been given. We have to guard what's important if we're going to build on the success of the past. You know, completing the wall was not meant to be an end in itself. It was meant to be the starting point for the people of God to gather together so that they could worship God and then go and tell of God. But in order to be a safe place, a secure place, a peaceful place, they, they needed God at the center. God needed to be worshipped. The city needed guarding, not just, on, not just once, but ongoing continual guarding. And, and, and notice something really interesting here in this passage is, is that he, he guards the gates, right? Look, look down your Bibles there. You can see that he guards the gates. He, he puts gatekeepers in place. But something that's a little surprising is that he doesn't just put gatekeepers in place. He puts some other people in place that you might not normally find at a gate. He puts singers in place. I think it's a little odd. He puts singers in place. Nowhere else do we see in the Bible where they put singers in place to guard. And then he puts somebody else in place who might, might not seem normal. He puts Levites there. And, and, and Levites, those were the men who served in the daily sacrificial system. They served the priesthood and, and they served in worship of God. And so Nehemiah does something interesting here. He doesn't just put gatekeepers. He puts singers and then he puts Levites. What's he doing here? What's he doing? You know, normally, Levites and singers would just be back at the temple, but he's not talking about the temple. He's putting these in place at the wall, gatekeepers and singers and Levites. Why is that? Because Nehemiah knows that in order to be the people of God, they don't just need physical guards. They need to guard who they are as a people. They need to guard the worship of God in their lives. That's true for us today, too. We need, we, need to, we need to guard our gates, so to speak, not only the gates of the church, but our gates personally and say, okay, we need to guard and make sure that it's a priority for us, the worship of God and the teaching of God. And so you have worship and teaching here, the Levites teaching and, and the singers leading in worship. It's one of the reasons why um, on Sunday mornings our, our, our singing portion of worship takes up a huge portion of our time. It's because there's a precedent. We need to guard the worship of God. We're guarding the regular idea of coming in, gathering together, worshiping God, because we need it. I don't know about you, but when I came in today, I needed to worship God. And it was refreshing. And, and my, my vision was taken off of myself, reminded of how great God is, how good God is, what God has done, who I am in him. And so Nehemiah is doing that. He's guarding. He's putting singers in place so they can put worship as a priority and guard worship. And you need to do that in your own life. Not just on Sunday, don't forsake the gathering of the assembly. That's why it's important that you're in here too. 
not just singing, but also in preaching and teaching. There's a regular principle. We need to be under God's word. And so that's what the Levites are for. They're, when people are coming and going, I don't know how, but the Levites were probably preaching to people or talking to them about God. So we need to put ourselves under the, the worship and the word and be submitted to that. Nehemiah, he's ensuring praise and worship was central as the people were rebuilt and the communities reformed. Praise and worship is central to the community of God's people. Not only is worship and song honoring to God, it's a mean, it means to draw close to God. A guy named Ray Brown, he says, human beings were made not just to please themselves and serve others, but to honor God. Those who deny this essential dimension of life cannot hope to please God. Did you catch that? We're made to not please ourselves and serve others, but to honor God. Those who deny this essential dimension of life cannot hope to please God and live a balanced, influential, and satisfying life. And he goes on, he says, we were made for communion with God. We were made for communion with God. Did you know that? You're you're made for communion with God. And he goes on, he says, and when we deny that spiritual dimension to our lives, deliberately cut ourselves off from God, we become weakened and imperiled by spiritual suffocation. Don't, don't do that to yourself. Guard the deposit. Guard what you have. Guard the, the, the worship of God. Guard the teaching of God in your own life. Guard your personal worship. If you, if you don't know what that is and you don't know where to get started, I would encourage you just to take some of the songs from Sunday and sing them in your own time with the Lord during the week. Guard, guard the, the personal singing. Sing to God. Worship God. Remind yourself every day of who God is and what God's done. And, then, and guard the teaching, not just on Sunday mornings. And, and be here and then in, in your care groups, your small groups during the week. But, but also to be in God's word. And we've been talking about how our goals this year really want to start with being people who are devoted to prayer in God's word. So guard the worship of God and guard the teaching. And guard what the teaching you've received. You need to be in God's word regularly. And next week, we're going to talk about God's word. So I'm not going to spend much time there because that's what all of chapter 8 is about. We're susceptible to drift, though, without guarding. Nehemiah knew that. And so he put worshipers and teachers at the gates. He, he wanted them to mediate the presence and ministry of God to other people. And that's what we're meant to do, too. We're, we're meant to mediate the presence of God to other people in our everyday lives as we come and go through the gates of our lives, as we come and go, we're, we're meant to mediate God's presence and we need to have regular worship and teaching in order to do that. There's established priority of protecting the integrity of the walls, the kingdom and worship and teaching. And the second part of the principle of guarding we see in Nehemiah is in verse two. Look down at verse two. He's doing something else. He's guarding character here. Guarding character. Character is essential in the servant of the Lord. And so he looked down at verse 2. He says, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge of Jerusalem. And he, he gives another word that's really important. It's for or because. Because he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. He was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Character is important, and Nehemiah is putting people in charge with character so that he guards the character of God's people. What's important in overseeing others is they be found faithful and that they fear God. And that's true for all believers, isn't it? You know, at the end of our lives, I think all of us want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness is essential in the servant of God and more essential as well in those who lead the people of God. We need to guard character. And then notice the other thing he says. He doesn't just say faithful. He says God-fearing. Now, now what is that? What's God-fearing? Does that mean we're all trembling, afraid that God's going to punish us? No, that's not what that means. It means living with a right respect in all of God, who God is in his holiness and who we are in our sinfulness and our need for God, awareing that we live, live all of life to God and for God, that, that all of life is to be lived as worship to God. That's to be God-fearing. Do you fear God in your life? Can other people tell that you fear God. Now, it's not because you want other people to be like, you're fearing man about that, but I want you to evaluate yourself. It, it, wait, am, I, am I being faithful and am I fearing the Lord? Can that be said of me? Am I guarding that character? We're not asking to, to be Superman. We're not even asking to run a marathon like, like Peter. So you don't have to do that. But 
you know what, God calls us to be faithful in following him, and he calls us to fear him, and it actually says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so you wanna be wise in your life and how to move forward? Move forward with faithfulness, fearing God. Fearing God means that there are men who are continually aware of the presence of God in their place before him. I think we need that reminder, we need to take a pause and say, wait a minute, are we aware of God and his presence? Are we aware that we're ever before the face of God? Are we living for God like that? If you're gonna move forward in this mission that he's called us to, we need to be God-fearing, faithful people. And to be God-fearing means to worship him in everything we do. They're mindful of the Lord, it influenced, it motivated, it drove all their actions and their words. They weren't man-pleasers who gave in to the whims of others, they were seeking to please God. And that's why, for, he, for Hananiah was that way, so he put them in place. How about you? Can that be said of you? If not, you can change. Trusting in the Lord. God, God can make us faithful people. God can make us able to be faithful. God can actually enable us where we feared man have been in that trap or where we've fallen prey to worry about what other people think and where we've been unaware, not living for God. God can change our hearts. If you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, all it takes is to say, God, forgive me, I've been unfaithful. You've already been forgiven, but now you apply his grace to your life and receive that and start anew. Or, or maybe like, God, I've, I've not been aware of you. I've not been thinking of you in my life. I've just been kind of going on, trusting in myself. I've not been fearing you. Would you forgive me? And, and God will apply his grace to your life and enable you to live in awareness of who he is and who you are in him and to, and to follow him. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, it's not insurmountable for you either. You need to repent, confess that you need God, that you can't be faithful without Jesus, with a faithful one. And God will give you a new heart and make you faithful. So we guard, we see Nehemiah guarding. He's, he's guarding the gates. He's guarding character. And then we see he's guarding what's important. Look down at verses three and four. Look down at verses three and four. He says, I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open till the sun is hot, and while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. And then he talks about appointing people, not just in strategic places, but he says, appoint them to their own homes as well. And that's kind of interesting. He, he knows that the enemy's always looking for an inroad. The enemy's always looking for a place to assault God's people. We, we found that out in chapter 6 of Nehemiah a couple weeks ago that we need to watch out because there's an enemy that's constantly prowling. We need to make sure we plug up the gaps. And, and now he says, you know, stay in those strategic places. Guard. Guard what's important. Guard your, for believers today, we don't have physical gates to guard. We don't have physical walls. But we do have gates of our minds we need to guard, Right? We guard what we think. We guard what we look at. The, the gate of our eyes we can guard. The gate of our ears. What do we hear? What do we listen to? The enemy's always looking for a way in. We need to guard what's important. And then he does something else. He, he, he makes them close the gates before it even gets dark. And, and there's something there too of, of let's, let's be wise not be foolish and say, you know what, we can get really close to the things that are dangerous, really close to darkness and be okay. We need to guard what's important, be aware and guard ourselves. You know, something's obviously sinful for you as a believer, it's sometimes easier to say no to that than it is if it's something insidious, right? Something that's subtly not good for you. We have to be vigilant, stand guard. It says the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be watchful. Don't allow robbers or thieves to come in. You know, it's easy in today's online world. There is so much information out there, so many things out there, so much temptation out there as well. And it's easy, whether you're a man or a woman, it's easy when you're just looking at something benign to get tempted by something and say, wait a minute, wow, what's this article about? And you can kind of fool yourself and just kind of, I'm just going to explore and see what that's all about. And then it leads to something else and it leads to something else. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm either reading something I shouldn't or I'm looking at something I shouldn't because I'm not guarding we need to guard what's important. You know, the media today, we need to guard our minds, guard our, guard our thoughts. 
The media is constantly preaching an unbiblical, ungodly worldview. And I don't care what background you come from, whether you are conservative or whether you consider yourselves democratic, liberal, whether you are somewhere in the middle or you're libertarian. Whatever your news source is, I can guarantee you it's not godly and biblical unless it's coming from the Bible. It's all, all, all any news source is going to be tainted. It's going to have a worldview that's not coming from the Lord. Now, yes, there might be Christian news sources, but I'm not arguing that point. That's not the bulk of things. It's not the bulk of media we have out there. If you have a great godly news source, then thank God for it. We need to guard the gate, set a watch. You know, the church, we need to guard, make sure we're not letting the culture set expectations for what we're looking for. We need to make sure that it doesn't, we don't allow it to affect our desires and we don't allow our consumer approach to church to enter in. You know, where we seek to pick and choose what we want, how we want it, when we want it. We need to resist the idea that if something isn't entertaining, it's not worthwhile, it's not worth the effort and check out. We need to guard ourselves against that ungodly view. Now, we want to be engaging. That's not, not what we're saying. But we need to guard this. Subtle temptations that the devil comes in, he uses these things, and we want to make sure we're guarding ourselves we also need to guard against this individualistic desires. We, God has called us and he saved us personally, but he called us to be a part of his kingdom. A part of his kingdom, a part of his people. Just like Nehemiah in that day and the people in that day, they weren't called to live as individuals. They were called to live as part of God's people. And that's how they viewed themselves. We need to view ourselves that way. What you do personally and privately, it affects what God is doing here in this church. It affects you. It affects the people around you. How you relate to people in your small groups affected by your own individual relationship to God. You need to be reminded, wait a minute, I need to guard that individualistic, individualistic idea and remind myself I'm a part of God's people. Take appropriate guards. Guard the gates of your mind. We're prone to do what seems right in our own eyes. And then the people here need to be, continue to be watchful. And he does something else. He appoints residents to be guards, not just strategic places, but over their own homes because they have a vested interest there. And I think that's good for us too. You have not just in the church and strategic places in ministry, but you need to make sure you're guarding your own house as well. You have a vested interest in guarding what God has done in and through your family, making sure that you're ministering the word to your family, being watchful over your own home. In the church, we... We have deacons who are strategically guarding the children. We have children's ministry workers. They're physically guarding, but also guarding the teaching. We have, we have guarding in other ways. And, and our, our small group leaders, they help, they help guard us so that we apply God's words practically to our life and guard us from just hearing the word and not being a doer of the word. Not just official ministry posts, but we need to guard our own homes too. So we come to really the second part, if you look down in the Bible, in, in verse 5, we come to the second part of the passage, Nehemiah, he starts carrying out the principle, of, I call it gauging, I was looking for another G, I gotta admit, I was looking for a guard engaging, you know. But you know what, that goes because he was estimating, he was trying to figure out, I want to gauge what we've got, I want to gauge who we are and what we've got. So he gauges who and what, and we need to, if we're going to move forward, we need to, to start right, in order to start right, we need to guard what we've got, and we need to gauge who we are and what we have. We gauge who we are and what we have. The word gauge there, it just, it just means to determine dimensions, capacity, quantity, to appraise, to judge, to, to figure that out. Back about five years ago, my wife and I, we, we found this enormous house, and it was a foreclosure, and we got there, we looked at it, and it was just a shell on the outside. It needed a lot of work on the inside. There was no trim. Half, most of the flooring wasn't there. There was no electrical. There was no AC, and it was just a box, well, a weird-shaped box, a weird-shaped large box, and we had to figure, oh my goodness, can we really take this on? Can we do this? So we had to gauge that. We had to, we had to estimate, okay, can we take on this major undertaking? It took us about a year. Um, every, every hour of free time we had, we were, we were working. But beforehand, we had to figure out, okay, well, can we really do this? And so I sat down and I, I put together a spreadsheet with like 20 tabs because I wanted to plan well. 
And so, okay, great. Well, how much is it going to cost to do this? And what's, what do we have here? Resources. How much money do we have? What, what do we have in the bank? And how much money can we get? And then what does it look like? And then um, what, who are we? Are we actually able? Do I have the skills? Does, our, do my, does my family have the skills? Do my friends have the skills? Can we do this thing? I had to gauge who we were and what we were capable of and what we had, Right? In order to move forward. And, 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 and that's true for all of us. In order to, to move forward, you have to start right. In order to start right, you have to not only guard, you have to gauge who you are and what you have. You have to gauge who you are and what you have. Are you invested in the project? Do you have the right resources? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you have? to move forward in this mission that he's called us to. And this mission, by the way, is to be disciples of Jesus who are growing as disciples and making disciples. And all three parts of that are the mission. To identify ourselves as we are disciples of Jesus. And, and we want to move forward in that. We want to move forward in our identity. We want to move forward as well in, in growing as disciples personally. In order to move forward, you've got to understand what you've got. You've got to guard it. You've got to gauge where you're at. In order to make disciples got to gauge where you are rightly. It's the first part of gauging, really, that we see. Gauge who you are rightly. Gauge who you are rightly. God gives Nehemiah this idea. He says, you know, God gave me an idea to have a genealogy. And you're all like, wow, what a boring idea. You know, if you're like me, you probably don't appreciate the, the finer lists in the Bible as much, right? It's harder to get into those, to get excited. You know, what's your life first? Oh, it's, it's Nehemiah 7 verse 50. Right? That's probably not it for you. I didn't even look up what 7 verse 50 is, actually. I probably should before it gets too bad here, but I'll look it up later. So, you know, your life verse is, is not about, you know, Barzillai or whoever in his family in verse 60, 62 were there. But he puts administration and ideas into Nehemiah's head to do a genealogy. Now, that should encourage anybody here who's an accountant, by the way. Anybody here love numbers and accounting and like order and planning? Anybody? You can, it's okay, we won't mock you. We won't mock you if you're, okay, good. All right, a couple people shyly raise their hands because they know that most of the world can't relate to that. Um, but we love you and we're grateful for you and we need you. Okay, we need the Nehemiahs who love planning and organization and we need people who like accounting and numbers and those kinds of things and spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. We, we need that. And so Nehemiah was given that gift to organize, to draw people together in that administration, I think it's interesting, you need to know, is, is just as spiritual. He says, God put it into my heart to have a genealogy. That should tell us something. We can just a little aside there is that administration planning is just as spiritual as, as praying and reading your Bible at times. If you are relying on the Lord and the Lord is enabling you, it is just as much a spiritual endeavor. And so he, has a, he, he finds a role of their members, and that's what we see really in the remainder of this passage, is if you have ever read the book of Ezra, this essentially is Ezra 2, the entire thing. He picks it up, and he moves it over here. Why does he do that? Because he wants to remind the people who they are. He wants to remind them of their identity and who they are. He wants to remind them where they come from. That who they are is they are people who were previously in exile who are no longer in exile. They are a part of something bigger. They are part of the plans that God is doing to build his kingdom, to bring a people to his place, to bring people to worship him. And so he cuts and pastes. You know what? They didn't have cut and paste back then, okay? So uh, maybe he actually physically cut it and then used, I don't know, pitch? What, I don't know what kind of glue they might have used back then, but he... he <laughs> He essentially cuts and pastes from the records. He's, he, was, he says, God put in my heart due to genealogy. And then apparently he finds Ezra 2. And then he says, oh, here's what I found. And, then, and that's really from verse 6 all the way down to the end of the passage. He's reminding them of who they are. Who they are. He wanted to make sure that the people were rightly oriented, both of their inheritance and of their calling. Do, do you know who you are? If you are a Christian, you have an inheritance. God has brought you out. You've been made a part of the people of God. This same people of God, you've been brought in. You've been grafted in. You've been made a child of Abraham by faith, as we saw in Romans months ago, right? That's who you are. You've been made a part of the people of God, something that is far grander than you, that God is doing all throughout history, and he continues to do. 
You need to know who you are rightly. You have an inheritance, a rich inheritance of, of God's word. You have a rich history of being a part of God's people. And you also have a calling. He did this because he wanted to make sure they were aware of their calling that had not changed from Ezra 2 and many years prior until now. And their calling was to be the people of God who would make the place for the worship of God so they could proclaim the name of God to the nations. And he's reminding them of that. So he's reminding them here. He didn't ignore history. It was important to rebuilding. Your history is important. It's important to remind yourself of who you once were too, right? We need to remind ourselves of apart from Jesus, none of us would be a part of God's family. Apart from Jesus, all of us would be completely unworthy Gentiles. Apart from God saving us, all of us are dead and lost in sin. We need to remind ourselves of who, who we were and who we are. But you know the good news is, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who you are rightly is a child of God. That's who you are. That's what you're defined as. And that is amazing. That's glorious. And that should be exciting to you that I am no longer who I once was. I am now made new in Christ Jesus. I now belong to the people of God. And I have a calling. And then he, he tells them something else here. Look down, I think, at verse 66. Look down at verse 66 of your Bibles there. It says, the governor told them they should not partake of the most holy food until a priest with umum and thumum, urum and thum, thumum should arise. And by the way, that, that never happened in the Old Testament after this. And, and what he's talking about is this group of people who they really were serving as priests. They wanted to be a part of the priesthood. They wanted to be a part of God's worship. They wanted to be a part of partaking of the holy things of God. They, they desired that and they wanted to find their names and they did not find their names written there. And so the governor says, now he's talking about himself, he's kind of some edits through here. They, they're not allowed to participate. Think how just discouraging that would be. You know, your life, you've, you've hoped to be a priest, you hope to participate in the worship of God, and now you're being discouraged to say, no, you can't. You can't draw near, you can't come in. You can't participate, you can't eat the, the holy bread. You can't, you can't experience the goodness of God in that way. They weren't allowed to partake of the most holy food. They were excluded from the full priesthood. They were told not to partake. They couldn't partake of the most holy sacrifice to God. In their day, and all the way until the New Testament, no such priest arose. They, they were living in expectation and hope that one day, one day someone would come and make them worthy. Here's where you read Nehemiah in light of today, is that there is someone who's come, and Urim and Thummim were something to do with prophecy and that they could see what God was doing, they knew God's will, they knew God's word, they got wisdom and guidance from some, we don't know exactly what they were, but from some means of discerning the will of God. And you know how John describes, in the very first part of the book of John, he describes who Jesus is. He says, he is the word of God. He's the very manifest presence of God. He is this high priest that's long awaited. You know, none of us belonged. None of us were worthy. None of us were righteous. None of us could claim the right to be priests. And, and most people in this room, genealogy-wise, are Gentiles. Most people. There's probably a few Jews in this room. But even then, I bet you can't prove your heritage all the way back to the book of Nehemiah, which is problematic because that means none of us could draw near. None of us could be priests. None of us could participate in the holy things of God, whether Jew or Gentile. We needed someone else to arise. And now what our hope is, what we know is that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah who's arisen, who now he makes us worthy. He brings us in as God's children. He gives us a new genealogy. He gives us a new right to be children of God. And we can prove and point back to Jesus and say, yeah, that's who I came from. And now I'm a child of Abraham. Now I can draw near to God and find mercy and grace in my time of need. I'm not like that. Jesus brings us near. He gives us a new identity. 
He gives us a new genealogy. And we participate in the holy things of God through Jesus. And, and here's the really cool thing. You know, every time we take communion, we remind ourselves that we are the new priesthood, that we partake of the holy bread, which is the body of Christ, that we partake of the juice, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus that makes us clean. We get to do that because he's made us a part of his family. He's brought us near. We partake of the holy food now. So we gauge who we are rightly. Maybe you struggle with your identity. Maybe you struggle with who you are. You need to know that as we move forward in this mission of building the kingdom of God, that we need to stop and reflect back on who we rightly are in Christ. That's your new identity. And then not only that, gauge what you have rightly. That's the second part of it. Gauge what you have rightly. He gives this long list of singers and mules and horses and camels and donkeys. And what he's showing here is that everyone and everything is important. Everyone and then everything is important. And all that we have is as a resource that's meant to be used for God. And then we see in verses 70 and following they're, they're understanding what they have rightly in light of the fact that God is the one who brought them out. God is the one who owns everything. And so they see who they are and what they have rightly in light of the work of God. So they're a part of God's people. They see that. And that helps them be able to move forward in the following chapters. But not only see what, who they are, they see what they have. And, and you see that from how they use that. They see that what they have is not to be used just for themselves. What God has given to them is to be used for the building of the kingdom. And so you see this extravagant gifts that they give. And Nehemiah had an edit from Ezra, in case you're wondering, there's some different numbers here. Nehemiah has gone through and edited, he's used it for his purposes. And, and so he edits here and he says, and the governor gave. He's talking about himself. That's not bragging, he's leading by example. He drew attention to the gifts of those in the past and and then he's now showing how, how much he gives. He says, the governor gave 1,000 derricks of gold. That's a, that's a lot of money. I think if you add it up and, and without inflation, it's something around, people say, around a quarter of a million dollars that the governor gave personally, significantly. It's like $12.5 million that these people gave. The leaders, the people, they were giving significantly, sacrificially. And it wasn't just the governor. It wasn't just the leaders. It, the people themselves. So the leaders and those who had, had much, they gave much. And then the people matched that. And the verses should at least cause us to reflect. How do we view what we have rightly? What God has given us. If everything we have is a gift from God, then, then everything we have, every resource, every time, every ability, every gift, our money, everything you have is to be used rightly for the kingdom if you want to move forward on this mission he's called us to. There's no way that God's kingdom can move forward without the people of God being a part of that and God enabling them to do that. Now, by God's grace, he does. He enables God's people to do that. Now, when I say there's no way, God... God uses means, is what I mean. God could super, supersede anything, but God doesn't. He, he uses means. He uses means to move the kingdom forward. And I think these verses should at least make us reflect, okay, how do we view what we have, what we've been given? Are, are, we, are we personally invested? Are we giving generously, sacrificially for the mission that God's called us to? to move forward together. And God's not just about building a place, he's about bringing a people to himself and the rest of Nehemiah. It's all about the work of building God's people. And here's the cool news, we're still a part of this today. But now Jesus has ushered in a different kind of kingdom, not a physical kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. He's ushered in his eternal kingdom and we have his kingdom come and yet not fully come. And we get to be a part of that, and he, he draws us into that. He actually calls the people today, God's people, he calls us the building. He calls us the place. He calls us the house of God, the temple of God, the, the workmanship of God. We're part of that today. We're built together into a people. And how we, how we do that, how we demonstrate that is we're built together in this local body. And we're a part of that. That's who we are that's what we have. It's what God's given to us. 
We're growing into, I love how Ephesians 2 says, we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's what you are. That's who you are. You're growing into a holy temple in the Lord, being built together into a dwelling place for God. He's made us his people. He's given us a great work. I don't know about you, but I want to move forward together. I want to move forward together. I want to move forward personally in my life. I want to move forward. In order to do that, I know I need to look back. I need to guard what God's done, and I also need to gauge who I am and then what God has given to me. I want to move forward. Don't you want to move forward in your own life as a church? Imagine if all of us just took the time this afternoon and said, okay, God, I want to move forward. I, I, I'm going to forget what lies behind me now, and I'm going to press on to the mark, to the prize, of the upward call of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to remember what's most important. I want to remember who I am. I remember what's most significant is this mission you've called us to of kingdom building. I remember who I am in you and what you've given to me, Lord. And Lord, would you enable me to move forward? I think it'll, it'll affect not only our church, but the community around us. Look back, we've been washed with his blood. We've been made clean. Now let's move forward in confidence. He's given us not only an identity, who we are, but he's given us a purpose, a mission, building the kingdom. You know the two things that people struggle with the most in life, I know it sounds kind of funny, but you can boil a lot of life struggles down to these two things. Most people struggle with their identity, who they really are. Who, who am I? That's a question that unless you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and even if you are, people can struggle with. It's a very difficult question to confront because you're confronted with the reality of, I'm not the person I wanted to be. But in Christ, he's given you a new identity. You know the other thing we struggle with? Purpose. Why am I here? The two biggest questions in life, who, who am I and why am I here? And yet God's given us a purpose. He's made us a part of his people and he's given us a purpose to to carry out his mission to build the kingdom. So he's he's answered the two major questions in life. He's given us an identity. He's given us a new identity in Jesus, and he's given us a new purpose to be a part of joining Jesus in building the kingdom, to join Jesus in going and making disciples of all nations. We, We have an identity. We have a purpose in him. Let's move forward. We want to see the nations bow. We want to, may we be his servants Let's stop and just be excited about the fact that we belong to the Savior. He's given us the kingdom. Let's be found serving him. You know, I, I, I know that if you place your faith in Jesus, one day you're gonna hear the words it says in Matthew. In Matthew 25, 23, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. How do I know that? Because we trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. Because God accepts us based on the merits of Jesus. Because we have the faithfulness of Jesus, I know I'm gonna hear these words. We look forward to the day when we can say, you know what, I have the faithfulness of Jesus and God, with what you've given to me, I've sought to be faithful. And then we get to enter into the joy of of our master because of Jesus. We have our identity in him and because of that we can move forward in Christ. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the grace that you give us to step back, to reflect, to not rest on our laurels, to, to guard what you've done in us, and then to gauge, to evaluate who we are rightly in you and what we have, Lord. And then, God, may we move forward together in this great mission that you've called us, Lord. And would you give us joy in serving you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.